and welcome to another episode of the How to Start a Startup podcast by Hyper. Today we have an interview with Max Korsman from Tidal Venture Capital. They cover a range of topics including what Tidal would be doing with founders besides providing capital, how Max would prepare for a meeting with a VC, how to get in contact with VCs, in-housing versus outsourcing, and much more. So with that, let's get into the episode. here today with Max Kausman. He's a investor at Tidal VC, um, who's one of our good partners at Hyper. Um, prior to Tidal, uh, management consultant at Bain for a couple of years and a, a decent history before that as well. I thought I'd let you do the intro, uh, Max. You'll do a much better job than I. So do you want to maybe tell us a, a little bit about Tidal and, and your role there as well, please? Awesome. Thanks, Max. And yeah, great to great to be chatting. Hopefully this is this is helpful to all the people who kind of engage in, in the hyper ecosystem. Um, so Tidal is a seed-focused venture capital fund. We're based in Sydney and New York. Um, we are deploying our second fund together as a team. Um, and so we look to kind of invest in that seed stage. Uh, we look to kind of help our founders to, to grow into global markets. Um, and that's kind of the, the crux of you know what we um, are about and and I would say the things that we really look to differentiate on are that focus on seed, a focus on product and go to market. So we like sort of product led growth, go to market models, and we like product builders and exceptional products. Um, and we focus on opportunities that are global because of our presence in the US. And we like to try and see some of our portfolio companies try and raise their later rounds of capital out of the US market as well. Um, so that's that's title. Um, my role as part of the investment team um, is a couple of things, is a few things I would say. Um, the primary role actually is is sourcing, screening and driving forward deals, um, so our investments. And that means, you know, from start to finish meeting new founders pretty regularly, um, determining which of those I think we should make a case for in terms of trying to invest, driving that investment case forward internally until we can get approval to invest. And then some of the post-investment execution pieces, so term sheets, legals, support with the documentation. And so that's kind of the, the broad end-to-end remit of deal flow. I also get involved in helping our portfolios. One of the great things about being in venture capital is you can actually influence the success sometimes of your investments. And so there's a few founders in our portfolio that I'm working with at the moment, and we help on a variety of things. Um, and that means access to all of the various members of the title team once we've invested, um, capabilities from you know a diverse range of tech companies and backgrounds. Um, and so we get involved and, and really help our companies. And the third part of the role actually is that title itself as a VC fund is a startup, right? And so we do marketing, we have to raise money from our own investors, um, we have to build our own brand and presence so that the best founders find us as well. Um, and so definitely, you know, part of my role is also helping to build title itself as a business. Fantastic. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, really keen to dive into, you know, Tidal's involvement in a startup um, down the track and also just pick your brain about, you know, everything that you look for in a startup. Um, given your experience, uh, you know, you probably meet with hundreds of founders a year, probably more. Um, so if we can dive into that and just unpack a few few of the common themes and, and tendencies that you'll look for, hopefully that can be helpful to the viewers today. Um, what do you like most about being in, in VC land? Yeah, um, great question. I, I really enjoy my role, obviously. I, I feel very lucky to be a part of the VC ecosystem. Um, 
I would say maybe, you know, a few things come to mind. Um, first and foremost is just that amazing diversity, as you mentioned, in terms of meeting lots and lots of founders. So really diverse ideas that I get to think about on a given day and jump between industries and functions and capabilities and concepts and ideas. Um, and that means I get to actually think really deeply about those new industries and new capabilities and new concepts um, because I'll never know as much as a founder about their own business, right? So every meeting I go into, um, I'm just trying to absorb information and I get to be really curious. And I think that's a really exciting part of the role. Um, and the thing that flows on from that, I would say as well, is that I get sort of a front row seat in a way to the future. And so people are thinking about just amazing products, concepts, um, you know, uses of today's technology um, that haven't been done before. Um, and, and I'm in a really privileged position where I get to sort of sit across all of that and understand what's happening, you know, from a technological perspective and also from a market perspective. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And the other one to add on that, I guess, I think I touched on it a bit earlier. I think it's unlike investing in the share market. We actually have the ability to help our own investments. And so to play a part in our own successes once we've invested. And so I really appreciate the ability to go in yeah. um, and help founders. I think that's why most people who are in VC are in VC. Yeah. Um, we want to be a part of making that future that a founder envisions a reality. And, and we exist ultimately to serve founders, not the other way around, right? Founders don't work for us. We work for founders and we are enablers and supporters through capital, but also through resources and help and support um, to help build the future that they envision. Amazing. Yeah. And can we maybe just probe into that a little bit more? Are you able to provide a few sort of examples, hands-on examples of what title would do having made a, a you know, two, five hundred grand million dollar investment in a in a seed yep. round for a startup? What what would you expect title to be doing over the next say six months with that founder? Yep. Yeah, great question. I think this is a different model depending on the different types of investors that come. You know, this isn't the same across each VC fund. I think each VC has a different way of working with founders and a different model for how involved they get um, yeah. and for what you know services and support they offer yeah. um, and their ability to do that given the number of you know companies in their portfolio, for example. Yeah. Um, from a title perspective, we really do pride ourselves and, and we'd like to be famous for being deeply involved. Um, part of that just flows from our portfolio structure. So we like to lead deals at Seed. And usually what that means is we write the largest check in the round, we take a board seat and we kind of have the ability to really get involved operationally. Mm -hmm. And so I would say from that perspective, you know, once we've made that investment, um, we get involved in sort of a degree of onboarding, um, helping the company sort of understand the way we work and yep. become part of our portfolio. And then there's ongoing support and the core areas in which that you know happens. And I've been doing this kind of recently with a, with a recent investment that hasn't quite yet been announced. Um, mm -hmm. I've been getting quite heavily involved in this sort of onboarding process. Mm -hmm. We really try and align on a couple of key things, right? We align on the metrics and the plan for the next 12 to 18 months. So generally what that journey looks like from a seed to series A perspective, what are the things we need to achieve? What are the you know optimization problems? What are the hiring plans? How are we going to go about setting ourselves up for the next set of milestones and the next set of achievements? Mm. And the core areas, I think, from a, a title perspective, where we lean in, um, there's probably three. It's product market fit. So product, pricing, packaging, you know, customer engagement. Um, it's go-to-market fit. So are you selling through the right channels? Are you engaging with your customers in the right way? Are you able to build a differentiated way that you can take your product to your customers? Mm -hmm. And then also in, in building and putting together 
are really still a team because as the business grows, of course, you're going to have greater and greater needs in terms of talent, what functions they are, what roles they're in, how you incentivize them appropriately and, and get them as part of that, you know, founding team and letting the business kind of really grow in a, in a you know, functional way with people knowing their roles and responsibilities and, and you know, everyone steering together. Yeah, amazing. And I'd imagine that those three pillars that you've mentioned there are extremely important through the DD process that you'd perform in the you know lead up to making an investment as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Hey, um, let's just step back a second um, before we've made this investment um, or Tyler's yep. made this investment. Yep. Um, if you were a tech founder, um, yep. what would you do to prepare for a meeting with yourself? your current self, your VC self, um, using yep. everything that you've learned, every, um, you know, piece of experience from meeting with founders, what works, what doesn't work. And also how would you get in contact initially? Got it. Um, yeah. So the getting in contact question is a question I'm asked often. Hmm. Um, there is no better or worse way. I think, you know, there's definitely you know, a lot of chatter around, um, is a warm introduction better. I, I would say generally, yes, it's a very, very good way. Um, because, it shows that you've thought about the right way to reach us as an investor. But I would say also like as an investor, you know, me and the rest of my team, and I definitely think the rest of my investor peers and other funds are open to receiving direct messages on LinkedIn and Twitter and via emails. Um, so it's a, it's a matter, I guess, of just finding the right avenue. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how you reach out. It's what you say in or, um, and so, you know, the, the reaching out is, is part of part of it, but it's really actually the reaching out is, is trying to entice interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to convince me to take a meeting and spend some time really actually getting to know the business and the business model. Um, so I would try and keep that outreach concise. I would really try and highlight the key, you know, few bits of information, mm-hmm. share a deck, of course, um, that will get me excited about the business and also articulate for me why you think your business is a fit for my fund, right? Because every every investor in the market doesn't invest in everything. Um, and so I suppose that like takes me to the second point that I, I want to you know, reiterate. Um, what really helps, what I find is successful is knowing why you're, in, you're reaching out to a particular investor, mm-hmm. understanding that they've invested in your space before, understanding that they write the sort of checks that you're looking for as part of your raise. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the easiest way to, for me to not, take a meeting um, and not you know, sort of engage with your outreach is for me to be really clearly able to understand why you're not a fit for the title fund. Mm. Um, and so, you know, knowing who you want to approach, knowing who as an investor is a good fit and planning out your engagement so that you're targeting the right sort of people yep. and reaching them in the right way, I think is, is really the way to sort of succeed in, in that approach. Yeah. So it sounds like quality over quantity. You know, the other approach would be copy and paste a really good message, send it out to to yeah. 100 maxes and hope that two buy it. Yeah. Um, you're sort of saying that invest time and effort into researching five maxes and you might yes. get responses. Yeah, as long as those five maxes are the sort of maxes that, you know, you understand what they're looking for. Like every VC fund, you can see their past investments on their website. You mm-hmm. can understand how much money they look to deploy in a round. You can understand their focus areas. And so, you know, understand why you're reaching out to the person you're reaching out to um, because, you know, I, I hope for the most part, when I go to introduce title on these calls, yep. it doesn't have to be a really long introduction. Yep. Um, people know why they're reaching out to title. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, there's, there's two maxes on this call. So we're, we're halfway there. 
Um, and if you were, we've made the, we've made the successful introduction, we've got a meeting. Um, yep. what are some of the things that, you know, you, you're coming prepared with to, to chat with you about? Yep. Um, so, I mean, the, the usual kind of set of documents and understanding of your business. So, you know, your outreach message should have the highlights. Um, we tend to receive pitch decks. Um, we don't want them to be super long. So really the, the 10 to 15, maybe 20 maximum slides that really convey the message of your business, the problem and the opportunity space, why your solution is exciting and interesting, yep. um, your traction so far. And of course, it is useful to know what you're asking for. So how much money you're looking to raise, what you're looking to spend that money on, um, and why, why this is the right time for you to raise money, um, what you've seen and what you've achieved in the previous period that gives us confidence that you can spend this money really wisely in accelerating your business and growing your business. Um, so I would say the slide deck is important. It doesn't always have to be a slide deck though. I've seen some really good loom videos by way of example that explain the business three to five minutes, give the high level overview, get me excited. I've seen a really good sort of word document memo style. Um, as long as it's concise and it conveys those core points, then, you know, that's, that's a great set of materials that I can have a read of in advance mm-hmm. and really help me frame how I'm going to go and ask questions in the meeting um, and what I need to understand to get conviction, to Mm. get excited about the meeting and then start talking to my team about, Hey, I met this really awesome founder. They're doing something very extraordinary. And I really want to spend a lot of my time now, you know, moving that process forward to explore a real investment. Um, Because, you know, there's a lot of founders, as you mentioned, Max, like I'm meeting with lots and lots of founders every week and we can't invest in all of them. (laughs) So it's really about how do you become and articulate that you are, that clear standout opportunity with like the huge opportunity ahead. Yeah. Awesome. I, I think that's some, some really great advice. Um, this is probably a question that you get asked quite a lot. Um, what are some of the key problems or, or the main problems that you see coming through um, or mistakes that founders make coming through the, the process? Um, and obviously we've talked about a few things around, you know, having a, a really good pitch deck that's not too long that highlights, you know, your, your point of difference and all these sorts of things. But what are, what are sort of some like one or two mistakes that you see frequently that are relatively easy for someone to sort of um, avoid? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a tricky question, right? It's very easy for me to be drawn to the last mistake that I've, I've probably seen. I think there's maybe... Um, I'll, I'll give you three. And, and the first one I think is probably the, the biggest one. Um, I do see it often, particularly in this early stage where a founder probably builds an amazing product, um, bells and whistles, a lot of technology, a lot of work, um, but they've built a product and they haven't validated the customer need for that product. Um, so they, they tinker, they play, they build a product, but they haven't gone and engaged as to why this is a need. They build a product they would have wanted to build and they've designed it in the way that they think is is the best. Um, but some of that research that underpins like why a customer really wants it, why they're going to stick with it and why they're going to pay for it just hasn't been there. And so founders kind of spent the time and the resource um, in doing that. And they haven't done that in a way that you know makes sense from a customer perspective. I would say that's the probably biggest one. Um, and I think the other mistakes that I often see are just mistakes of maybe overconfidence or, or mistakes of, um, you know, just belief. And, and of course we want all our founders to have like a really core bit of belief in themselves. Yeah. Um, but the important one, I think, I think that comes with that is, you know, founders can't be good at everything. And so trying to solve everything themselves is 
not always the right option. Yeah. Um, understanding where you can get help, understanding mm-hmm. your own weaknesses, really understanding yourself as a founder and what you're good at. Maybe yeah. you're a product builder. Maybe you're a sort of mercenary salesperson that can just get customers on board, right? But it's about identifying the holes in your own capabilities and then eventually bringing the right team around you. Yeah. Um, and it's also just about being realistic about how quickly something can be built and how long it takes to receive funding because these things always take a bit longer than, than people expect. Yeah, for sure. And um, on that note around you know building out your team, I, I think that's super important um, and, and something that if someone can do as early as possible within the piece, um, and I don't mean getting yep. out of equity or anything like that. I mean, leaning on friends and, and coworkers and people that you've got relationships around you to yep. um, play to different strengths that you don't have. Yep. I, I think it's super important, especially in the work that we do at Hyper, where we're working with someone that, you know, just has an idea. You know, if, if you haven't got a marketing background, call your friend, yep. everyone from a friend that works in marketing, give them a call, see what they yep. think. They'll be yep. able to help out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little bit more advanced than that conversation, but what are your thoughts? So in the seed round, you may be working with a business that has the technology built or a business that is still pre-development. Yep. What are your thoughts around um, bringing an in-house tech team, so CTO and, and devs to be mm-hmm. able to execute a build versus outsourcing the build? Can, do you have a few pros and cons that you can sort of share with us? Yep. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the pros and cons are, I think, very, very clear and I think relatively well understood, right? If you're using sort of outsourced, providers, there's a, you know, less of a degree of control. Um, at some point as your product grows and, and the demand is there, if it does, right. If, if things take off, mm. you're going to want to have control of the product and you're going to want to like take it in house and, and build it yourself and have control of it yourself. So I think you know, there, there comes a time in products development where if you've gone down the outsource developer route, you're going to have to bring it in house if it's going well, and that's a good problem to have. Yep. Um, so the question is really whether you decide to build it yourself right at the very start mm. or when you pull the trigger, I guess, with a bit of success and a bit of understanding of how it's evolving um, to bring it back in-house. Um, so, you know, pros and cons, pros, when you have it in-house to begin with, it might be slower. Um, yep. You might actually be giving up equity. Um, I wouldn't say go and you know hire the first developer that you know and make them your CTO. Yep. Um, there's often, you know, increasingly some really great no and low code tools where you can build something without a technical background and see if it works. And so what you're really trying to do with this product build is, is, you know, the MVP concept, the minimum viable product. So can you build it yourself even without a technical background? It's possible. Mm. If you're going to outsource, that's a you know perfectly reasonable decision and choice. Mm. Um, but be aware that it may be the sort of thing that you have to bring in. And so you want to get it to a point where you can validate that product with customers, yeah. understand if it's working, understand the demand. Yeah. And once you start to see some repeatability. Once you start to see some interest, that probably becomes to me the right time to bring it in house. And so I would say, you know, once you're really earning real revenues and monthly revenues, we would probably expect to see that, you know, there's at least someone internally that is managing maybe that outsourced development team that has a technical background. Cool. That all makes sense. And I think something that you said there was really interesting. Don't hire the first person, the first developer that you come across. I think it's yeah. something that, you know, I've heard several times, you know, I've, I've got a friend that's that's worked at Microsoft or I've got a friend that's done some coding. I'll bring them in as a CTO just because someone's got a background in development. Yeah. It's such a broad topic. So that yeah. doesn't default to CTO position. So I yeah. think that's some really good advice. Um, I've only got a couple, couple more questions for you. 
something that I've heard you talk about in the past are like two-sided marketplaces. So um, think Uber Eats is an example for, for those listening, um, where you've got to play with both supply and demand. The Uber Eats example is pretty straightforward. Everyone's used it before. On the supply side, yep. you've got, uh, what am I looking at? Domino's on the demand side, you've got people like you and I that are going to yep. order food off their Get couch. Get hungry for some pizza, exactly. Um, when we're working with a, a seed company, seed sage company, yep. or even earlier, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, your views around balancing supply and demand? Obviously, you need supply in order to have people like you and I using the platform. Yep. But then you also need demand for the suppliers to be enticed to come onto the platform. So it's a really interesting juggle. It's just wondering if you can share some thoughts around your experience in, in the space and um, how you view it. Yeah, um, good question. I would say from a title perspective, we haven't done a ton of marketplaces, mm. um, but it is definitely something that we look at, and it's a you know it's a big subsection, let's say, of, of the tech ecosystem. Um, I would say even at the early stage, you know, the founders of marketplaces probably have a a good sense and maybe at least a hypothesis around which of the sides is going to be more challenging and more problematic, yeah. um, and and it really goes down to the marketplace problem is that you actually have to have a go-to-market strategy for both sides. I have to find a way to get Domino's on my platform and to convince Max that, hey, you don't want to call up Domino's, you want to you know, buy your Domino's through me and I can have it delivered to you. Um, and so I think you know, once you have that hypothesis, um, you're all constantly going to be building up both sides and testing and learning, but usually there's one side that is going to be tougher to crack. And I think that's the, the side to focus on um, because, you know, usually one side leads to another. If, if in this restaurant example, you, you figured out that um, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to tell Domino's to join your platform mm. when you've got lots of users, then you might focus on the user side. Now, of course, no user is going to get on your platform if you don't have some restaurants already on the platform. And so what you need to do is just figure out the right level of incentives, run experiments, keep testing and learning. And, and, and it's really hard thing to keep in balance. Yeah. Um, but there's always economic ways, I guess, of encouraging whichever side is actually more problematic to get on board with the platform. Because the great thing about a marketplace is, is as it grows, it has like this beautiful network effect where once you can get it really going at scale, mm -hmm. the benefits become obvious. Like in this Uber Eats example, if I'm a restaurant now, I'm very clearly missing out on extra sales by not using a delivery platform. And if I'm a user, I understand that these delivery platforms have lots and lots of options and choice. Yeah. Um, and so in that early stage, it's a really delicate dance, but you've got to kind of work with the right incentives yeah. to keep them to a degree in balance and, and focus, I guess, on, on the problematic side. Yeah, for sure. Some good advice. And um, on that note, final, final question. Um, what would be, I guess, one piece of advice that you'd give to a first-time founder? Cool. Um, a first-time founder. So like love to see first-time founders. Um, it's, it's always exciting um, that someone has, I guess, taken the leap, right? That, you know, we see multi-time founders out there. They know what the journey is about. The journey is going to be hard. Um, but as a first-time founder, you, you, you're taking a leap, right? You've got to have deep conviction um, in the idea. And, and you've really, like, in some respects, committed a, you know, a good chunk of your life and time. And you've taken a good amount of risk to really try and build this thing. So you, you care deeply. Um, my advice is probably twofold. I would say... An important thing, as I probably mentioned around the, the common mistakes, is solving for the customer. 
So don't just build it because you believe it should be built. Really engage, do the research, understand deeply the problem that you're solving and why your solution is better than the alternative solutions and why customers are going to love it and pay for it. And you want to be building and still talking to potential customers and you want to be doing that research as you build. Um, So don't overbuild, don't create a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Be really customer-centric in in how you build. And so that's probably the first piece. Um, And the second one's another one that you touched on, right? It's surrounding yourself with the right people. And that doesn't just mean the right team. You're not always in a position to hire straight away, but there's a really great ecosystem going on in Australia of which Hyper is a part, right? It's about your mentors. It's about your advisory board. It's about talking to other founders and sharing experiences. There's lots of community. There's lots of ecosystem stuff to, to participate in and get involved with. Um, and so I'd really you know, strongly recommend surrounding yourself with great people, trying to engage an advisory board and mentors and chatting to people um, because it is lonely being a founder. You are at the top. You're trying to create something that doesn't exist. Uh, and so it's really who you surround yourself with that can make that journey a lot more easy um, and certainly more fun. Yeah, amazing. Some some really good advice there. Mate, that was, that was awesome. Um, thanks so much for your time. Is there a way... We're obviously going to have a lot of founders watching this and and wanting to get in contact with you because this has been super helpful. Is there a way that you prefer to be contacted that doesn't, you know, just flood your your inbox or is there, what's the best way for people to stay in contact with you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, although I don't just accept LinkedIn requests without a targeted message as to why you're connecting. Um, my email address is on my LinkedIn, so there's a way for you to reach me there. Um, of course, I'm I'm now in that hyper community, and so you can ping me there, or you can certainly talk to, to Max or Sam and say, hey, I'd love to be introduced to Max a title. Um, so lots of ways you can reach out, as I sort of said before, um, but be really clear about why you're reaching out, what you're looking to have as part of the conversation, and why I should be excited and interested. Um, but certainly my DMs are open on, on Twitter. Um, my email address is, is there on my LinkedIn. So there's plenty of ways you can reach out. Amazing. Thanks for listening to another episode of How to Start a Startup brought to you by Hyper. Do you have a product or business idea but don't know where to start? Visit us at hyperhq.com and book a free confidential session with a Hyper Business Mentor to discuss your idea and how to make it a reality. We'd love to talk. And that's all for this week. See you next time.